Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 8th, 2022, uh, election day, midterm day. Some people believe American democracy is in crisis. And perhaps the last time it was in crisis was in the 1930s, in the time of FDR. When we go back to the 30s, we think mostly of FDR. He seemed to shape that age more than any other individual. Uh, we did a show recently with Jonathan Darman, who has a really interesting new book out, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. But of course, the 1930s was not just about FDR. There were many other important figures, both um, in, on his staff, in his camp, and uh, critics of FDR. One who comes to mind, of course, is Cordell Hull, who was uh, the longest-serving U.S. Secretary of State, was FDR's Secretary of State. We've all heard of Cordell Hull in terms of foreign policy under FDR. One man some of you may not have heard of is Joseph Clark Grew, who was, um, uh, to borrow... Uh, a term from the book we're talking about today, Our Man in Tokyo, the American ambassador in Tokyo during the 1930s. And we have a new book out about uh, Drew, a fascinating character, fascinating book. Uh, Steve Kemper is the author, the author also a number of other interesting books, um, journalistic books on uh, historical subjects. Um, and um, Steve is joining us from West Hartford, Connecticut. Steve, what drew you to writing a book about uh, our man in uh, our man in Tokyo, um, uh, Joseph Drew? Uh, books are serious undertakings. There must have been something very compelling to you. Well, the, the seed of it was that I read a book by Eric Larson called In the Garden of Beasts, which you may have read. It, it's about the American yeah. ambassador to Germany in the 1930s, early 1930s, when Hitler and Nazism were just starting to catch on in Germany. And it was fascinating to me the way he captured this, this entire culture and country sliding towards insanity and irrationality. And it made me ask myself, who was our man in Tokyo? And that's literally how I started looking into Gru. So tell me about this guy. Um, looking at him, he looks like um, uh, from Central Casting in the 1930s. Very white male, little brush mustache. Uh, those mustaches, of course, post-Hitler aren't very fashionable anymore. Mm. Was there something unusual about him or was he a, a standard product of the American Foreign Service? Not that there was really a professional foreign service in the 1930s. Well, actually, there was. He, and Grew was one of the people who ushered it in. He be, when he started in the Foreign Service, there were no professional diplomats, but that changed um, in the 20s when the, the Foreign Service was incorporated and they actually started um, giving tests to Foreign Service officers to be, to, who wanted to become professional diplomats. The, the patronage system didn't go away and Grew hated that, but he took what he could get. Was there anything unusual about him? Um, you know, I think it, it's one of those those times where history requires some people to become more than they would have been or could have been. Grew was, in some ways, as you said, a standard product of 
the WASP Northeast privileged class. And that, that made up quite a bit of the State Department in those days. But he broke from that tradition in many ways as well. That was tended to be a Republican um, clique and grew as a Republican, a child of Boston Brahmins, grew up in a life of privilege, Groton, then Harvard. Um, but he, he, he left that behind, um, I think because he was such a world traveler, he was posted all over the world. It broadened his view. And when Roosevelt came in, whom he knew from Groton and Harvard, um, he wasn't sure Roosevelt was going to be the man for the job in the 1930s. <laughs> Pardon me. But he quickly became a huge fan of Roosevelt and demonstrated that he was not tied to party uh, terminally the way some people were, uh, the way some Republicans were. Uh, he had previous jobs, um, Denmark of all places. We always joke about Denmark, America not really being like Denmark, Switzerland. Uh, he was the Turkish ambassador. It was a big job, though, going to Japan. Did When he was appointed ambassador to Japan, did FDR and his administration, did they understand the importance of the job? Well, to back up a little, he wasn't appointed by FDR. He was appointed by Herbert Hoover in 1932. Okay. Uh, and they did understand the, <clears throat> the importance of the job. Japan had just invaded Manchuria in 1931. Its army had invaded that country without asking permission of the civilian government of Japan. That was an alarming development. And so Hoover and the Secretary of State at the time, Henry Stimson, said we need to send our best man to this post because it's the most dangerous one in the world right now. And they picked their best guy. Um, he was reappointed by three times. So uh, Rose liked the job he was doing. He knew him. They weren't friends, but they were uh, acquaintances. And he liked the job that Gru was doing there. So he wanted him to continue, as, especially as the um, mission got more and more dangerous and volatile. The title, of course, is a wonderful title, Steve, Our Man in Tokyo, borrows from the great Graham Greene novel, Our Man in Havana, which mocks foreign servicemen and generally any kind of uh, establishment institutions. But um, he, he uh, grew, uh, Drew was, a, a, in, in your mind, was a model, a paradigm for professional diplomats, wasn't he? I think he was. Uh, he turned out to be um, that way. Not That's not the opinion of everyone, by the way. Um, some people in the State Department, even at the time, did not agree with that assessment. They thought that Gru, as he spent more and more time in Japan, had gone native, so to speak. That was the term. And it was... was we, which is what the great ambassadors always do. I mean, it's what makes them great, isn't it? Uh, I don't think so. And I don't think Gru would think that either. He was he was um, insulted by the charge because he knew of the charge. Uh, he felt that he was his job was to to look towards the host government and towards his home government. And he had to be the interpreter of one to the other uh, and the, the, the middleman. And so to go native would be to go over to the host government side. Gru never wanted to do that. He just wanted to represent it faithfully. To his home government and vice versa yeah it's interesting we did a show uh, a couple of weeks ago with a historian uh, harriet harrison uh, 
who has a book out about an 18th century or two 18th century interpreters uh, between Britain and China. Um, why was the situation, Steve, so complicated uh, in the early 1930s? Uh, and why was this American relationship? And we all know how it ends. It ends with Pearl Harbor and then the war. But why do some revisionist historians believe that it could have turned out quite differently? Uh, I'm not sure why revisionist historians believe that. I mean, there are certain paths that were not taken that that grew suggested that the our government attempt and they were not attempted. And so it, that's a game that it's it's hard to play that game. Uh, it's I guess it's fun to play it at a dinner party, but it's not it's not really uh, fruitful. I don't think to play. Well, it. I, I I don't want to co- um, I don't want to compromise Drew or you, but certainly um, in, in terms in terms of this story, um, there are some people who believe that American policy towards Japan in the 1930s was mistaken. Is that fair? Uh, it's not, it's, it's, well, and, and perhaps rather than, I keep on asking these questions, Steve, you're the expert, explain the situation when in 1932, 1933 in, in, in Japan and in terms of American relations with Japan, Japan. Yeah, I think you had it right when you said it was, it, you, you asked, why was it so complicated? And that's why, you know, when you ask the, those open-ended general questions, it's hard for me to blurt a simple answer. And that's one of the most fascinating things about this, the research I did. It, it, Japan was a total mess. Uh, and it, there were there were conspiracies, there were plots, there were murders, there were there were assassinations, there was terrorism, there was a coup attempt. There was all this, the cabinets fell and grew, had to deal with 17 different foreign ministers in his 10 years there. So um, it was, it was, it was for a diplomat, what do you do? You try to figure out who's in charge and who is reasonable and cannot use any leverage to lever them back towards the path of sanity. Um, they also had this complicated system of government where you, they, they believed that their emperor was a god, literally a god, and he was. And this the, was Hirohito. That was Hirohito, correct. So they believed that he was. You know, he was the spiritual leader of the country, the commander in chief, and um, the, the leader of of the country. And yet, since he was a god, he was not allowed to make any decisions. So uh, he was powerless in in many ways, except that the army, in particular. And, and anybody else, but the army became very adept at it, could use his name and say, we are acting in the name of the emperor for the good of the imperial way. And that's what they did throughout the 30s and uh, more and more without Hirohito's consent until, of course, he he's a very controversial figure. But... Yeah, and a complicated figure. So, but, but Steve, what, I, I, I take your point about Japanese politics being complicated and a huge mess. But would it be fair to say that there were two, I'm trying to boil it down, simplify it for our audience, there were two core camps in Japan, the war camp and a camp less committed to war, shall we say? Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. There, They were moderates. There were the moderates. Some In, in Japan, they were called liberals, which is a, 
hilarious misnomer. They were not liberal in any way, but they did want to keep good relations with the West because that is what had made Japan a thriving, powerful nation, the most powerful in Asia in a very short time. They were, it was a medieval country until the 1850s. And by the, by the First World War, they were the power in Europe. It's an astonishing transformation of a culture. But it was so fast that there were still a lot of people devoted to the old imperial traditions that make, them, make Japan great again, it, that camp. And the, the military were definitely in that camp. So yes, they were at loggerheads and the military by the time grew got there were in the ascendant. And as you say, Japan miraculously invent, reinvented itself um, uh, in the first 30 years of the 20th century. How nervous were the Americans about this given Japan's uh, geostrategic position and ambitions? very nervous um, because they they began showing signs of um, territorial expansion first by invading manchuria and then they they crept into north china and then the war with china began in 1937 right the then, second uh sino war correct uh, and then they went down into indochina and took indochina so uh it, it was an alarming development. Uh, Japan kept saying that, well, we need this. We need all these places because they have the raw materials that we must have if our country is going to survive uh, economically. And it, there was some truth to that. Japan's very resource poor. They have to in, import everything. And Japan was terrified that if imports were cut off, their nation would become second rate. The military used that fear uh, is an excuse to expand aggressively. Instead of with trade, um, they wanted the territory, they wanted to control everything. And then let's shift to, back to Washington. To what extent were US foreign policy focused on um, controlling um, uh, Japan, fearing Japan, uh, which in turn perhaps strengthened the war party in Japan? Well, they were very intent upon trying to control them without uh, starting hostilities. That, and of course, that's diplomacy. Um, how do you, right? How do you become to an agreement with with a, a nation that is intent upon um, military expansion without either appeasing them or starting a war with them? And that's the tightrope that Grew was on for ten years. Why was Drew accused of going native? Were there, were there people in the State Department who believed that he was sympathetic to the Japanese predicament in terms of trade and territory? Yes, uh, because he was sympathetic to it. He kept trying to tell the people in the State Department, we, we need to consider where Japan is coming from so that we can deal um, more fruitfully with them. We need to talk their language. So he actually had his um, his staff put together um, a large analysis about everything from the Japanese point of view, and they they had some interesting points. The depression had just happened. Japanese uh, exports were uh, often hit with big tariffs by the Western nations who were trying to protect their own industries. That meant that if Japan can't sell its goods, Japan can't buy the 
resources it needs to maintain its economy and its its system of life. So Japan started looking elsewhere to, to find those resources. Um, and Gru said, of course, they're going to do that. They, they want to survive like any other country. That doesn't mean that he condoned them going in and taking the resources, which is what they did. But that sort of um, willingness to see Japan's perspective was not met uh, very well by some people in the State Department. And, that's, and was that particularly uh, Kodel Hull, who's a hawk? Um, was there an element, perhaps, of, of race and racism here, Steve? Oh, there always is. You know, that's that. You can never discount that. Um, and of course, it, as soon as the war began, in fact, before the war began, you started seeing the um, that in in the U.S. Uh, I have a, a section in the book about farmers in Arizona um, and in California who basically had a terror campaign against Japanese farmers because um, because of racism. They wanted them out. It was xenophobia. Um, so yes, that was that was definitely part of it. And by the way, I wouldn't say that Hull was a hawk. I, Hull resisted the real hawks in the FDR uh, administration. He's the one who kept saying, no, we can't, uh, we can't ban oil exports to Japan. It will start a war. We so can't... Who, were the, who were the hardcore hawks in the FDR administration? Um, Morgenthau certainly was. Uh, we did a show on the Morgenthau family recently. Hmm. Why was, was a, he such a hawk? Why was he such a hawk? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think he probably thought that Japan was intent upon taking over what he thought should be um, part of America's um, holdings. Uh, China was China was a big deal, and as you know the open door policy kind of split China up among the Western nations and Japan and China. And Japan's invasion of, of China upset that, that uh, profitable apple cart. So that was probably one reason. It was, you know, money's at the bottom of a lot of things. Race is at the bottom of a lot of so, things. So in that sense, Morgenthau was a, almost like a, a classical European colonialist, no different from the Europeans. Well, I would maybe you know more about it than I do after reading that book. So uh, I'll take your word for that. Uh, no, I you certainly know more about everything on on this front, Steve. Than I, I know it's hard to deal in counterfactuals, but is it conceivable to imagine a scenario had Drew been given more power, more authority over American policy, that Pearl Harbor could have been in, uh, avoided? That's the question Grew asked himself after the bombs fell there. And he wrote um, a long, what he called his final report from Japan while he was interned in Tokyo for six months after the, after the attack. Um, and in that, he went over all of his dispatches, all of his speeches, everything that he could, trying to figure out, was there any place that we could have, I could have done something different for, that would have resulted in a different outcome? And the, the question's not answerable, of course. Um, but there were a couple of spots that deeply troubled Grew. And the main one was, uh, and it was a surprise to me, was that the prime minister of Japan, Prince uh, Konoye, had requested a secret summit meeting with President Roosevelt in the Pacific in American territory 
to sort things out so that there would not be a war. And this was in late August, early September, just a few months before Pearl Harbor. And instead of grasping that opportunity, the, um, the State Department was cynical about it, didn't think it would work. And also Hull insisted, because he was so inflexible, that Japan meet all of these criteria first before the US would consent to even having a meeting to talk about possibilities. And that was uh, deeply troubling to Grew that we didn't at least explore that. Yeah, it's interesting that he 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 took this so seriously in, in terms. Well, not interesting, I guess, inevitable. I know uh, he wrote a book, uh, Ten Years in Japan, about his experiences. Um, is one of the problems in, in in your analysis, Steve, that people didn't quite understand, even in Washington, how important. The Pacific Front was in military terms. We did a show on the Second World War recently, which suggested that um, it was, in military terms at least, as important, as consequential, and as tragic as, as, as the European Front. And yet, it's always Europe that gets all the attention. It's Hitler, it's France, it's the battle for Britain, it's the Russians. Yeah, I, I think you're right about where the attention tends to go. I think, though, that the the U.S. military and the State Department certainly were absolutely knowledgeable about how important the Pacific was, uh, and FDR was too, as an old Navy man. So um, they didn't think, though, that Japan would have the nerve to attack the United States. They thought that the attack would come in Hong Kong or Singapore or uh, someplace like that. Um, <laughs> and it, it did. It, it, they hit those places, too. So they did plan. They did war planning um, and they rejected the idea that that the Japanese would hit Pearl Harbor, for instance. Uh, but they were very adamant about trying to rein in Japan's ability to control the sea lanes. Hong Kong was a was a, a massive uh, worry for the U.S. and the British. And the British, of course, were constantly trying to rope the U.S. in to sending some ships to the Pacific because uh, Britain was kind of um, caught up in a war on, in the European theater. To put it, to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, Pearl Harbor has, of course, acquired, the, 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 the day of the Pearl Harbor attack has acquired mythical proportions in America. Tell me about um, Drew's day when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, I assume the attack came in some ways as much a surprise to him as anyone. When did he first hear about it and how did he respond? Well, to back up one day, one half a day, the night before Pearl Harbor, he got a, a triple confidential telegram from um, the State Department saying it was, a, it was a note from FDR to Hirohito, a personal note, uh, begging Hirohito, not begging, but saying, please do not let this go any further. We're heading towards war. That would be a massive mistake for both of our countries. Grew got to the foreign uh, minister's house at midnight, delivered that. The foreign minister knew that the it was too late. He, he knew that the, the bombers were about to be launched. Um, so he took the note. Um, Grew went home, went to sleep, got up the next morning. It was a beautiful December morning. He planned to play golf because he loved golf. Golf clubs were down in the chancery. And then he heard the um, the news, the newsboys calling um, war has been declared. 
uh, he couldn't believe it. Oh, back up just a minute. I left out that when he woke up that morning, he had an urgent message to go see the foreign minister again. So he went over there. He thought it was a response by the emperor to the FDR's telegram. But instead, it was the foreign minister handing Drew a document saying, I'm afraid the negotiations are over. Um, goodbye. And Drew thought, well, we'll just work it out later. He's What were they negotiating, Steve? What were the negotiations over? Well, they were, that was, that, they, the terms kept changing. Uh, what Japan insisted upon, what Hull and FDR insisted upon, it was a, it was a moving target. But the main targets were get your troops out of Indochina, get your troops out of China, um, agree that you will not advance by force anywhere in Asia, only by financial means, by economic means. Um, and Japan couldn't agree to those things. So that was, those were the terms that were rejected. When was he interned? When did he lose his freedom? That day, uh, as, as soon as the, the bombs flew and every, everyone knew that they, the war had been declared, the Japanese police shut down the embassy, started searching it for shortwave radios and any, any communication devices so that the embassy could not talk to the US government anymore. For some reason, they didn't, um, they didn't confiscate the code books and uh, confidential documents. So the, the embassy on that day was basically a, um, a bonfire in every, in every room they were burning. And what was happening in DC in terms of the Japanese en uh, embassy? Was the, the Japanese ambassador interned in the same way? Yeah, they were, but they were, they were interned in a, in a posh country club <laughs> in West Virginia. So it was, it was quite a bit different. The, the, the people in, in Tokyo were given heat several hours a day. They were given enough food to survive, yeah. but, uh, but not enough to get fat on. Gru did have a massive wine cellar, and he was determined that the J Japanese were not going to get that. So uh, he began distributing his wine cellar at all the, all the dinners to everyone in the embassy. Um, and there was still some wine left after six months of internment. Must have been quite a collection. I'm surprised that you know, even though the countries went to war, that they didn't at least exchange ambassadors. Was there any talk of that? Well, that's what the, that's a very good question. And I don't know that the history of why it took so long. There were negotiations began almost immediately. And for some reason, it took six months to, um, for, for the sides to come to an agreement about who was going to be released and who was, who was going to be allowed to come back to you, to the U.S. and vice versa. Your book's been reviewed in China, in, in Japan uh, by the Japanese Times. Um, uh, he was a popular man in, in Japan. What's been the response of the book in, in Japan? Do you think it's quite different? And, and how is Drew remembered in Japan? Well, it's only, you know, the book just came out today. So right. um, I can't really say what the reception has been in Japan. I don't think there's been a reception yet. <laughs> I have to give it a little time. Drew was very popular in Japan, uh, despite all the anti-American uh, fever that, that grew and grew throughout the 30s. The Japanese laid off of Drew because they could tell that he was trying to understand them, trying to maintain friendship. And um, they somehow didn't they somehow didn't put him in the same class as the, the people in the United States who were um, 
calling for Japan to do things differently, although Gru was certainly doing that behind closed doors to the leaders of Japan. So he was popular there uh, because he, and he had a lot of Japanese friends when he had, of course, you probably, as you know, diplomatic missions are constantly giving social affairs. And at Gru's embassy, about half of the people who were invited were Japanese. And that was extremely rare in the other embassies in Tokyo, which Gru didn't understand. Um, but that's what, what he was like. lessons, uh, Steve? I know that you, you, you may be a little wary of drawing too many lessons from this book, but given that there are war clouds now on the horizon when it comes to Taiwan, we've done a lot of shows on Trump and Biden's policy towards China and how America should be behaving towards China. Is there anything we can learn from this book, Our Man in Tokyo, about American relations with China in the 2020s? Boy, that's a, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of lessons to be learned. They're basic diplomatic lessons. Um, Gru's essential philosophy was don't scold in public, be firm in private. That's the way you maintain the relationship. It's the only hope you have that you can change it moving forward. Um, I don't know how things are being handled now. Um, I know that in the previous administration, the State Department basically blew up diplomacy so that uh, there was no real diplomacy. I, I don't know if it was the State Department, it was the president who blew it up. Well, I mean, he had a couple of uh, <laughs> secretaries of state who helped him light the light. The right. Yeah. OK. So so for you, this is a book about the credibility importance of having responsible, honest, professional foreign servicemen to run a country's affairs. And and this man, uh, Joseph Grew, uh, was a credit to his country. Is that fair? Is that a, a broad conclusion of your book, Our Man in Tokyo? I think that's absolutely fair and accurate. I, th I think I, I think that we can learn lessons just from Grew's character. He was devoted to foreign service. He was devoted to representing his country in an honorable way, and yet in a, a firm way that stood up for um, basic American principles without making enemies around the globe. So I think that's a that's a valuable lesson in, at any time. And as I said, he, he he wrote his own book, 10 Years in Japan. What did he do when he came back? Did he, did he have any other postings or was that his final posting? That was his final uh, real posting. When he came back, uh, he was sent on a barnstorming tour by Secretary Hull to talk about what he knew about the Japanese. It was part of the war effort. Um, and so he, I think he gave 250 speeches in his first year back and everybody wanted to come hear him because he was very well known in the US at that point, since Japan was in the news all the time in the thirties, everyone knew his name. And they wanted to hear what this guy who knew the most about Japan had to say about them. And he told them that uh, this is a militaristic cult that has to be destroyed before Japan will be a safe place um, again. But on the other hand, there are many honorable and lovely Japanese, and we can't lose sight of that either. That part of the message eventually got dropped because he was asked to drop it. Didn't fit the propaganda effort at the time. And then he became um, head of the, the Far Eastern desk, the Far East desk. And then he became um, Assistant Secretary of State, second in command at the State Department. So he had some 
responsible positions when he got back, and he helped to write uh, the surrender terms for Japan. Was he um, shocked by the brutality of the Japanese in the war? Did he did he expect that? And and what was his position, official or otherwise, on the bopping, the the the, the dropping of the two uh, atomic bombs on Japan to end the war? Hmm. Well, he at first when he first got there and these atrocities began in China, Grew frankly didn't believe them. He believed the Japanese lied that. Um, that these were exaggerations by the Chinese trying to get sympathy, that, that these were missionaries in, in China who were trying to blacken Japan's eye. And then the reports kept coming and kept coming and the photographs kept coming. And he had to um, acknowledge a lot of brutality is occurring and I've been misled. And he became adamant about civilian casualties and atrocities um, against the Chinese people. So. He changed his mind about it. And as far as the, the bombs, he he believed that um, as far as I can tell, and he was he was very circumspect about this, these sorts of things um, because he, he felt that to say too much about a policy decision that his country had made would make him um, not a good soldier. And he was a good soldier in that sense. He deplored the destruction of Japan I don't know if he thought there was a way around it. Um, he did not. He did not ever go back to Japan, and I don't know, but I suspect that one of the reasons is he couldn't face what it would look like. Yeah, I was going to ask you that as a final question. We've done some shows on um, modern Japan. One with a couple of journalists who've written a book about Carlos Ghosn uh, and his travails in Japan. He died in 1965, so he lived long enough to see J Japan resurrected or reinvented again. Do you, in your sense, is the Japan of the 2020s, is it a foreign country to the Japan of the 1930s that Joseph Drew was uh, American ambassador in? That's a very interesting question. And of course, we're never cut off from our histories, are we? So you can't say that it's uh, a totally different country. It's not, it, it, this is recent history really. And there are people in Japan who uh, still kind of refuse to believe that Japan was at fault in World War II. They, they have uh, the Yakasuni Shrine, which is the shrine of the, the noble war dead in Japan. And in the seventies, they put people in there who were architects of the Pacific War. That tells me that some people in Japan have not accepted what happened. Interesting stuff from Steve. Uh, some of you be familiar with his previous books, also very well reviewed. Uh, Splendid Savage, book about Frederick Russell Burnham, and another book, um, A Labyrinth of um, Kingdoms. He's also written a book about um, uh, the Segway. So quite, quite a quite an achievement steve you're a man of many talents congratulations the book is just out our man in tokyo great title very important subject fascinating main character joseph drew congratulations steve on all that oh any other suggestions of books for our listeners or viewers to read in addition to our man in tokyo well right now i'm reading maggie haberman's book confidence man mm. which, um, 
extraordinary. And anything terrible. new in that? I mean, there've been so many books about Trump. Um, I'd like to get Maggie actually on the show. I haven't tried, but is she revealing anything that we didn't already know about him? <laughs> Very good. I think she's not. She's revealing nothing that would surprise us. But there's things in there that have not been reported before. But that doesn't mean that it's not. Um, it's it's a book that that I that I hope a lot of people read. Another book that I would recommend, um, and I, it's a little bit older, but I'm reading it now. It's called Bloodlands. It's by Timothy Snyder. Yeah, an important book. Eastern Europe between um, Hitler and and Stalin and what they did to Eastern Europe. 14 million dead, murdered by those two. And these are not soldiers; these are all civilians. Uh, I had no idea that the uh, the murderousness was that severe, uh, and it's a fascinating book.